Before I preach this morning, I would like to take this special time to recognize somebody in our midst who has served us for 12 years already. Pastor Julio, would you please care to stand? Thank you. Thank you for 12 years of service. Maybe at least 12 more. <laughs> and also we're celebrating Calvary's 65th anniversary, by the way. So we thank God for that. All right. Well, what if I tell you right now that I'm going to give you a key for you to gain access to the best thing that could ever happen in your life? Would you believe me right away? Well, perhaps some of you would say, there's a catch here, Pastor, right? Is it another trite pastoral sales pitch about spiritual matters regarding your best life now? No pun intended on the book with the same title. Well, there is indeed a catch to it <clears throat> because it all depends on what you think is the best thing this life could offer. We all want access to the best things in life, don't we? Access to it is a privilege. But let me cut the chase at this point. Today's message talks about the privilege of having access to the best place where we could ever be. We are in a sermon series in the book of Hebrews, and I don't know if you noticed, in the past four chapters, starting with chapter four, past four weeks, starting with chapter four, the author of Hebrews puts some emphasis, a lot of emphasis actually, on the priesthood of Jesus Christ. The subsequent chapters after chapter four, he talks about a better promise. And then he moves on to talk about a better sacrifice. And then last Sunday, Pastor Julio talked about a better covenant. <clears throat> Today in chapter 9, the author continues to present another outcome of that great priesthood, and that is he opens or gives access to a better tabernacle. Now, before we dive into the passage, allow me to present a brief review of the Old Testament tabernacle, priestly uh, ministry that happens there as a place of worship for the people of Israel. As you know, when God brought his people out of Egypt into the wilderness, he instructed Moses to build a portable tent structure that will house the Ark of the Covenant. We call that the tabernacle or the tent of meeting. It is described in Exodus 25 all the way to chapter 31. There is an outer court surrounding the tabernacle and the structure itself is divided into two rooms, two sections, the holy place with its furnishings and behind that holy place is a room that is separated by a thick veil called the Holy of Holies where the Ark of the Covenant resides. So it was between those wings of the cherubim on top of the Ark of the Covenant called the mercy seat, that God would meet man. Exodus 25, 22 says, There above the cover between the two cherubim that are over the ark of the covenant law, I will meet with you and give you all the commands for the Israelites. 
You see, under the Old Testament law, only one person could ever enter the Holy of Holies. And on an extremely limited basis, only the high priest can enter once a year on the Day of Atonement to do the ritual sacrifice of blood, first to atone for his own sins, and then eventually to atone for the sins of the people of Israel. Regular priests who took care of the daily rituals of sacrifice could not get nearer than the outer room. If you're an ordinary person during that time, no nearer than the outer court. So for all practical purposes and understanding, men had no access to God at all during that time until Jesus came. Hebrews chapter 9, verses 8 to 10, the author describes that situation and he begins by saying, the Holy Spirit was showing by this that the way into the most holy place had not yet been disclosed as long as the first tabernacle was still functioning. This is an illustration for the present time, indicating that the gifts and sacrifices being offered were not able to clear the conscience of the worshiper. They are only a matter of food and drink and various ceremonial washings, external regulations applying until the time of the new order. And then Jesus came. When Jesus came, he opens the way to a better tabernacle because he is the great high priest. Now, when the author speaks of the better tabernacle, he describes it as one that is not made by human hands, a heavenly tabernacle. Furthermore, he says that the earthly tabernacle in the old order of things is a mere copy of the true one that is in heaven. Verse 11, he is telling his readers, presumably Jewish converts during that time, that when Jesus came, the physical and temporal nature of that place has now been elevated to a spiritual and eternal one under the new covenant. One that is better because it is perfect. So how did Jesus make that possible? Hebrews chapter 9 tells us that it all hinges again on his great priesthood. I'd like for us to take note of two important aspects about Jesus' great priesthood that pave way to that better tabernacle. First, his perfect mediation. Offering sacrifices is part of the Old Testament priest's mediatorial work. The priest, who is likewise a sinner, had to offer sacrifices first for himself and then for the people. And this involved the blood of animals that is required under the Mosaic law. In the case of Jesus, it's different. He's the great high priest. His mediatorial work from the perspective of sacrifices involved offering himself by his own blood. There was no need to offer sacrifices for himself because his sinless humanity would be the only standard that is acceptable to God. Nothing else. A perfect God requires a perfect sacrifice, and only Jesus met that standard. Hebrews chapter 9, 11 to 12 says, But when Christ came as high priest of the good things that are now already here, he went through the greater and more perfect tabernacle that is not made with human hands. 
That is to say, it is not a part of this creation. He did not enter by means of the blood of goats and calves, but he entered the most holy place once for all by his own blood, thus obtaining eternal redemption. If you jump to verse 15, it says in there, for this reason, Christ is the mediator of a new covenant that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance now that he has died as a ransom to set them free from the sins committed under the first covenant. As a mediator who was fully human, Jesus is able to sympathize with our weaknesses and he perfectly understands us. Our great high priest has an unequaled capacity for sympathizing with us in every danger, in every situation, in every temptation, in every problem, in every situation that comes our way because he has been there through it all himself. He is at the right hand of the Father right now interceding for us because of his perfect mediation. Those who, of us who believe and are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance, a better tabernacle. Second, his perfect provision. The author of Hebrews reminded his readers of Jesus' perfect provision that turned God's throne of judgment into a throne of mercy and grace. This provision of shedding his own blood by sacrificing himself for sinful humanity met the standard again of the perfect God who required perfection. Thus, unlike the repetitive sacrifices done by the priest in the tabernacle, a one-time sacrifice of himself was sufficient for all in order for us believers to obtain that eternal redemption. I call it one-time, big-time sacrifice. Hebrews 9:12 says, He did not enter by means of the blood of goats and calves, but he entered the most holy place once for all by his own blood, thus obtaining eternal redemption. Again, the author repeats the same understanding in verses 24 to 26. It reads there, For Christ did not enter a sanctuary made by human hands that was only a copy of the true one. He entered heaven itself, now to appear for us in God's presence. Nor did he enter heaven to offer himself again and again the way the high priest enters the most holy place every year with blood that is not his own. Otherwise, Christ would have had to suffer many times since the creation of the world. But he has appeared once for all at the culmination of the ages to do away with sin by the sacrifice of himself. These verses clearly communicate why Jesus' provision is perfect in order for us to have access to the Father. It was perfect because it only took once to do it, it was perfect because it covered a multitude of sins for all who will believe. And it was perfect because it satisfied God's wrath against us for our sins. His perfect mediation and provision gave us access to the perfect place, the better tabernacle. A tabernacle that is accessible anywhere for the believers when he or she communes with God in prayer or in worship not made by human hands, not limited to a specific place here on earth, and our guaranteed destination 
when we leave this world. And also accessible, as Pastor Julio mentioned in the first service, 24-7. Isn't that amazing? Church, there are interesting events in history that prove what Scripture has foretold and what God has planned in ushering the new covenant. The Old Testament tabernacle, as you know, was a prototype of what would soon be the temple built by King Solomon, a more permanent structure situated in Jerusalem. This was destroyed by the Babylonians in 587 BC and was rebuilt some 70 years later. The second one, the second temple, was the temple in there in Jerusalem in existence during Jesus' earthly ministry. And so the year was AD 70, less than 40 years after Jesus was crucified, when the Roman general by the name of Titus invaded and destroyed Jerusalem and also the temple, the only place where sacrifices could be made. After its destruction, no Jewish sacrifices have been made until the present time. For the Jewish faith or Judaism, it meant lost hope for their sins to be atoned for through the ritualistic sacrifices. They must have been devastated. For the Jewish Christians in us, however, it meant two things. First, it meant the fulfillment of what Jesus foretold in the first two verses of Matthew 24. And then it also meant the affirmation of the new covenant in Christ that renders all the ritualistic priesthood and sacrifices in the temple or tabernacle obsolete and unnecessary. Thus, under the new covenant, again, we have access to a better tabernacle. And so what now? What is the contemporary significance of this truth for us 21st century believers, or even non-believers for that matter? We're not Jewish, right? I submit to you three things of significance and practical application. First, for the non-believer. If you are here today, or if you are watching live online, or the replay of this message, I'd like to tell you that faith in Jesus guarantees access to the heavenly or better tabernacle. Hebrews chapter 9, verses 27 to 28 just as people are destined to, to die once and after that to face judgment, so Christ was sacrificed once to take away the sins of many and he will appear a second time not to bear sin but to bring salvation to those who are waiting for him. The verses clearly say that we will all face judgment when we die. If you think you will pass judgment and gain access through the to the better sanctuary based on something else other than faith in Jesus Christ, then I invite you, non-believer, to consider this. All of us have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. The God who will judge us is a perfect being. The only standard acceptable to a perfect God is perfection. Only one person met that standard, Jesus Christ. Well, here's the good news. 
Because God knew there was no way for imperfect and sinful men like us to meet his standard, he sent his one and only begotten son into time and died for our sins. He was crucified and on the third day he rose again so that we can have access to God's presence both now and eternity. So what do you need to do? Believe in his son Jesus Christ and ask him to forgive you. To believe in Jesus means to have faith that his death and sacrifice for your sins is enough to give you access to eternal life in God's presence. This is the only path for salvation and the only way you can pass judgment from a perfect God. John 14, 6 says, I am the way. This was Jesus talking. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes through the Father except through me. It's exclusively Jesus. Do you know that 3 billion out of 7 7 billion people living in this planet don't have access to that good news that I just told you? Consider it a privilege for you who still do not believe because you heard it today. God has been knocking at the door of your heart and I implore you to accept his offer of salvation. When you do that, you will be given guaranteed, you will be guaranteed to access the best place that you can ever be both now and for eternity. Second, for the believers. As believers, we can draw near and enter God's presence with confidence. Hebrews chapter 10, 21 to 22 says, And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart and with the full assurance that faith brings. Now that we have access to a better sanctuary to Christ, Scripture reminds us that we can approach God with freedom and confidence. Now, here's how it works in the practical sense. Every one of us needs help. We have needs. We have problems. We have challenges. We have weaknesses. We experience confusion. We have limitations. We are not God. We need help. And I hope you're not too proud to deny that. While we do acknowledge our need for help, we likewise know deep in our hearts, as believers, again, as believers, that we don't deserve the help because we have failed God repeatedly. While we remain in this flesh, we still continue to deal with sin because of our sinful nature. It is this idea of sinfulness that makes us feel that we don't deserve any help from God. We are needy people. I need help with a lot of things I could think of. Help in my work, in my ministry, help in my family, my spouse, my children, my finances, my life, my health my personal struggles, and yes, even my faith walk. Yet I realize before a holy God that I don't deserve the help I need. So what should I do? Do I resort to despair and hopelessness? Not so, the scripture says. Hebrews chapter 4, 14 to 16 says, 
Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has ascended into heaven, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way just as we are, yet he did not sin. Verse 16, let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. Our access to that perfect sanctuary is a great privilege that each one of us can avail of. Isn't it comforting and encouraging to know that we can approach a holy God with confidence and also we can approach him just as we are? Because we have a great high priest, the throne of God becomes a throne of grace. The help we get from him is that of mercy and grace. Gracious help is what I call it, not deserved help. Ephesians chapter 3 verse 12 says, In him and through faith in him, we may approach God with freedom and confidence. Church, my wife Cecile and I, firmly believe that the best thing we can leave our children is a spiritual legacy. Um, there has been a huge prayer that we've been through uh, in the last some four or five years ago, and it has to do with our son. Uh, you know, during that time, some four years ago, my son approached us and he said, Mom, Dad, I need prayers for a possible move to Dallas and a promotion. And for us, knowing him, it is concerning. Why? Because we know our son, he easily caves in to peer pressure, and most of his friends here in the valley are non-believers. And so you know what I mean. But we prayed to God. We asked God for something else we decided that we will pray fervently and this is how we will pray for him. Lord, don't grant him the promotion unless, unless he will be able to gain new friends who are strong in the faith and will lead our son to take his spiritual walk seriously. And so, it took more than a year for us to pray for that. We kept praying, we kept praying, and my son was traveling from the valley to Dallas. And during that one, one and a half year span, God did his gracious act to answer our prayers. What are the odds that the first person my son would hire for his team is a solid Bible-believing Christian? Later on, he became my son's accountability partner. And then eventually he introduced him to his relative and they started gathering and having Bible studies. Eventually, the Bible studies have grown and I consider them now a house church, a grow group. Amazing. My wife and I would just cry and go down on our knees every time 
we are reminded how gracious God is. If you know my son, you know it's grace. Some of you know him. <laughs> so every time I recall that, I am just so humbled and I praise and thank God for what he has done. Third, we are to serve God out of love and gratitude, not guilt. Because we can now approach God's throne with confidence and a clean conscience through the work of the high priest Jesus, the author of Hebrews explicitly tells his audience the purpose for that privilege. Hebrews chapter 9 verse 14 reads, How much more then will the blood of Christ who through the eternal spirit offered himself unblemished to God, cleanse our consciences from acts that lead to death so that we may serve the living God. We have been set free to serve the living God with consciences cleansed from deeds that are spiritually lethal. The author couldn't be more explicit in stating that purpose, so that we may serve the living God. What does serving the living God mean to you? Perhaps for most Christians, serving the living God means being part of a church program or activity. We spend time volunteering uh, to church ministries. We help with our resources for kingdom cause. We volunteer for mission trips. We support the church. We join grow groups. We do life together. We pray for one another. We study God's word, and then we become part of ministries that allow for us to contribute our spiritual gifts. And these are all good things. In fact, the Bible says God has prepared these good works in advance for us to do. I want to caution us, however, about a trap that we may fall into in serving God, serving the living God. And that is serving out of guilt and obligation. Are you serving God for fear that he might punish you or you will lose his favor if you don't? Well, if you're not sure about your answer to that, here are some clues that perhaps could help you determine if you're serving God out of guilt. First, you start feeling bad about yourself if you missed serving even for a valid reason. You start to blame yourself and tell yourself, man, I'm a bad person. Consequently, you become so driven to make up for missing to serve. Second, there's lack of joy in serving because you start finding it as a burden. You start complaining and then you tire out easily. Eventually, you burn out because you overestimated yourself. Let me remind you, the needs of the ministry is never-ending and that you're not God. God has designed rest also as part of serving him. Third, you start comparing yourself to others and become critical of other people whom you think, you think, serve God less than you do. In other words, you start shifting to a legalistic understanding on serving God. I call it the serve or suffer mentality. If any one of those are true to you, then let me remind you of something about God that has been repeatedly mentioned here in the pulpit and is evident in the Bible. We are serving a God of love and grace. So let that thought sink in. 
until it wells up a strong sense of gratitude in your heart. Once it has sunk into your heart, then come back, keep serving him. But this time, out of gratitude and out of joy. Believe me, you'll be surprised how much difference it will make in your service and in your faith walk. Romans chapter 8, verses 1 to 2 says, Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. The law of the Spirit is the law of love and grace. The law of sin and death is legalism. Oh, what a privilege it is to serve a gracious and loving God. In closing, I started today's message telling you about the keys to access the best place in life you could offer or this life could ever be. Actually, all of us believers already have those keys. We already have access. But we sometimes forget about that privilege because of the many distractions the world and the enemy has set before us. Here is my hope. I hope you'll continue to enjoy that privilege by communing with God through worship and prayer any time of the day. For the non-believer, it is my hope that you will one day, if not today or soon, accept God's offer of salvation through Jesus Christ. Because our great high priest, Jesus Christ, opened access to the better heavenly tabernacle, we can now draw near to God with confidence and serve him joyfully out of love and out of gratitude. Amen? Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we're so thankful for sending Jesus Christ to us. We're so thankful, Father, that he has opened the way for us to access the better tabernacle. And we're so thankful and we ask that you help us to serve you with joy, to serve you with, out of gratitude and love. And we ask, Lord God, that you also help us come to you always with confidence, Lord, approach you in time of need. This is our prayer in Christ's name. Amen.